Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Security Squawk Podcast. I'm Brian Horning with my co-hosts, Reginald Andre and Randy Bryan. Uh, Andre's down in Miami with Arc Solvers IT, and Randy is somewhere in Texas at Tech, Tech Rescue. I'm up here in the Northeast in Philly, and we're here to bring you some education and news around cybersecurity. we got some good things to talk about this week. We're going to start off the show uh, reviewing some, uh, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about a little bit of the T-Mobile stuff, a little bit about what's going on with Microsoft Azure, uh, and then we're going to talk about some stuff that we dug up that it's kind of in the news, but not really around some government entities that are having a little bit of a problem around cybersecurity. Um, but before we get into that, remember, we're here and we volunteer our time and our efforts and our knowledge for this content and this show. So if you could just remember to like our uh, our podcast on any platform that you download this from and share it out on your social media, spread the word, spread the good word that we're here educating people and making them aware of what's going on uh, with cybersecurity. Because quite frankly, this is going to become part of your lives no matter where you go. Um, this is going to affect everybody at some point in time. And our hope is, is that we can get that word out there ahead of kind of what we know that goes on behind the scenes that we deal with on a daily basis that the average bear might not know. So gentlemen, welcome to the show. Uh, I know the two of you were recently together somewhere in Texas. Um, welcome. And you're both back home safe and sound. So uh, that's all, all good and welcome. So uh, Texas is a really big state. We like keeping it in the somewhere in Texas category. That's right. Yeah, we got to hang out. It, was, it wasn't the same without you there, man. Yeah, everybody right. wanted to go cruise the the streets the at night on scooters, man. Dude, I don't I don't cruise the streets <laughs> of Dallas at night. <laughs> yeah, but Austin, would you? <laughs> yeah, Austin's a great town. Um, I wish I could have been there, but I had other things that I had to deal with up here. So um, I'll catch you next time, right? So um, you guys want to share anything before we jump into the content? Is there anything you want to talk about pressing wise, uh, in your business or just in general? Um, no, just going back to this conference, it's just so important as things are opening back up, it's just to like get reinforcement, whatever, you know, industry you're in, it's just so important to get that mindset, um, just realigned to, to yeah. whatever it is that you do. Pull back, get get out of the day to day. Focus on working on the business, not in the business. Right, those types of things. Um, you know, being able to have maybe different conversations with your teams. All, those conferences are really good to go to and, and just reset and refocus and just make sure that you know the goals that you set for yourself that you're you're actually hitting and and uh, you know maintaining. Right, it's, it's too easy to get caught up in the day to day and then you know, before you know it, the year's gone and you didn't really move anywhere with your goals. So um, very important stuff, uh, stuff that we work on all the time, you know, the three of us, because we're in, in a, the same mastermind group. Um, but getting out of the office and getting away a lot of times is good just to clear the head. I totally agree with that. So it, it's also great getting around other experts and getting to, because everybody brings something to the table. Yeah. You know, um, and just getting to share ideas and talk about stuff, run stuff by each other, man, good stuff. Fun times too, man. You so when you it. guys come out of those, I guess let's, let's expand on that for a couple of minutes. When you guys come out of those, is there anything that you specifically do to make sure that like, cause like, I don't know, early on in my, like many years ago, when I first started kind of doing this in my business, I would go to these shows. I would get you know pumped up and like, yeah, ready to go back in the office. And then, you know, you get back and you kind of look maybe two or three weeks a month down back and from when you got back from the conference and you kind of fell back into like that normal like day to day stuff. And you really didn't focus on the things that you talked about or discovered during these conferences. So are there any strategies that you guys use or implement when you go to these types of things to make sure that something like that doesn't happen? Because I certainly do. Um, you know, there's, there's things that I do to make sure that I, I at least take what I learned there and implement it in my business. So is there anything you guys do? Yeah, for me, I, I essentially wrote a whole bunch of notes and now I'm delegating it. So, um, and then just, <laughs> just prioritizing what we want to get done. So, okay. Yeah. What, anything you do, Randy? Um, my, my biggest 
thing that works for me is to uh, get accountability. So like going into this particular time, I had actually made some commitments to have some things done before this time. Just basically it's setting goals, but then putting accountability with them. That's good. Um, I do, I do something a little different um, in terms of that. Um, what I do is I try to leave these conferences with one or two objectives that I, that I, either hold myself accountable to, or at least make sure that they get done. Right. So there's, I usually try to walk away. Like I walk, I might walk away with 15 different things, but then over those 15, I will find the, the two or three most important. And I will make sure that before I go back the next quarter or before that in the next three months is over that we make some progress or if not, if we can knock out those objectives um, as part of what we do. And, um, that was something I picked up probably three, four years ago when I went to a Sandler conference, um, a Sandler sales training conference. They have a big Sandler summit uh, every year in Orlando. And that was one of the things they, they kind of, you know, told us is like, look, you're going to come out of here. You're going to drink from a fire hose for the next two days. Just break it down to like two or three actionable things that you can do. So um, I started doing that and I do that all the time now. So um, hopefully other people learn from that and that's good advice. And, uh, you know, I great advice. Yeah. Those things that you guys, that you went to and, you know, I go to them all the time too. I just couldn't make it to this particular one this time around. So, um, the other thing I want to, I want to kind of bring up something that kind of pissed me off this morning. And if I had the name of the person, I'd actually call them the fuck out on it. Um, so I got a, you know, I put myself out there, um, and putting putting yourself out there on social media, you know, there there's certain things that come with that territory, which I'm totally cool with. Um, obviously, you know, people being assholes in the comments section being one of them. Um, but interestingly enough, um, I got a I got a message on LinkedIn this morning at 7:42 a.m. from a professor at Syracuse University who watched one of my YouTube videos and then decided to message me and say, connect and message me at the same time. And he said, uh, the, the, the hacking group Revel is our evil for ransomware evil, not Revel like Revel, right? And I know this by now, right? And most people know it's our evil. But I did a YouTube video a year ago profiling this hacking group way before anybody was talking about them, right? So nobody really knew what the proper pronunciation is. So I just wrote back to the guy. I was like, yeah, no, no kidding, right? Like, obviously. And he's like, well, your video, you say it wrong through the whole video. And I said, go look at when I posted that video. It was like a year ago, if I remember correctly. Um, it just so happens that that video is like one of my most popular videos right now because everybody's kind of wants to know about rebel and rebel or our evils on everybody's radar. Um, so I was going back and forth with this guy and then all of a sudden he, he blocked me on LinkedIn. So he connect, he messaged me, connected with me and blocked me. Um, and it was really annoying to me because this guy's a professor and he told me that I should do better research before I make my videos. So, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of how I feel about that. Um, but what are your guys' kind of thoughts? You're doing this with me. You're putting yourselves out there. What, like, is this something where you just look at it like I did and go, you know, screw you and move on? Or how would you guys handle this in terms of like, like, because I think this is a lot of why people don't put out content because they're afraid of douchebags like that. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? I mean, it can be uh, a little disconcerting. It can be a little upsetting. You know, it ruffled your feathers a little bit. Yeah. Um, it does come with the territory, though. I there's going to be, there's always going to be haters. You know, they say haters going to hate. I mean, that's, that's really true. And I mean, the best you can do is just reply back. You know, um, I typically, if I can, try to reply back in a disarming way. Um, sometimes that helps. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, it's just, I don't know. I don't expect it to ever go away. It's interesting though, right? I mean, it's just interesting. What are your thoughts, Randy or uh, Andre? 
Yeah, I haven't um, experienced. I haven't experienced that yet. Um, but uh, if it was me, I wouldn't give it enough time. Um, I wouldn't. I would just blow it off and, and move on. Yeah, and I think that's the point. And I and I handled it the same way. So I don't want anyone here who watches my YouTube channel or listens to this podcast to think that we don't get hate. Um, mm -hmm. Quite frankly, we're not like compared to where we're going to be in two or three years. We're not, you know, as popular as I think you know we're going to be one day. Um, which we're going to get probably a lot more hate, you know, then. Um, but it's interesting. It just, it's amazing to me that an actual, like it wasn't hard for me to find this guy's email on Syracuse, Syracuse's website. And you know, I emailed him. Um, so, <laughs> um, but it's interesting. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that I got to say to people, like, don't be afraid to speak your mind, speak your message, put your message out there, go on social media, uh, because of fear of, of people like that. You just learn how to deal with them. Um, but it's a shame that those people exist, quite frankly. So um, but that's it. So let's jump into the content for today. Um, first thing I want to talk about, guys, is is uh, we'll, I guess we'll go in order. Let's talk about that T-Mobile breach. Um, these guys, man, these guys over at T-Mobile, um, 10,000 records, I think they let go, but they're not admitting that. But the hacker who hit them said their security is, is awful. Um, does that make, is anybody here a T-Mobile customer? Yeah, we have the, uh, we have the business lines with T-Mobile. Yes. So, okay. So then perfect. How does this make you feel as a T-Mobile customer? And actually this really didn't affect T-Mobile customers. This affected anybody who's applied for a T-Mobile account. So um, you don't even have to be a customer. The, right. It's not just that though. There has been, they have admitted to, um, I want to say it's in the millions of customers' data that's been released in the same breach. This article may not mention it specifically, but there's been a lot more than just people that applied for credit, uh, credit, uh, you know, credit checks or whatever. So, and we're on T-Mobile also, and it's uh, it's disconcerting. But there's also things you can do to protect yourself, um, and they are offering a like a free McAfee ID you know, monitoring thing. But bottom line, really, the, the gist of this article is the most disturbing thing of it all, you know, because your data is going to get breached. Your email is going to get breached. Your, not your email, but your um, your email address is going to get leaked on the on the dark web. Your passwords are going to get leaked on the dark web. I mean, that's just part of life, you know, in 2021. But the disturbing part of this article is, is the title. Yeah. So... Like he got in through it, what it looks like he, he was able to use a popular cracking tool to break through a router. Um, and that's about all I know about it. So I don't have any specifics. So that leads me to believe um, that either they were using uh, a router that was not properly patched or they were using a router that was deprecated or legacy. Right. And that, that had a vulnerability that this guy was able to exploit because he's clearly saying, you know, like he didn't do anything special. You know, their security is awful, which means it was really easy for him to get in. Like he didn't have to have to do much. Ready available tool to find exposed router could have been Shodan, quite frankly, and took a week to delve through customer data stored in a data center near East when when that chi washington um so what else do you guys know about this besides what's covered in this article so, so for one thing they're saying it's about 50 uh 50 million customers or people that apply that are affected by this but to give you an idea they have approximately 104 million subscribers so it's a big percentage base of, of their clients and as Randy says, they're offering, you know, a, a, a credit monitoring and, and things like that. And it's so interesting is because this is so this this incident is so big and they don't know every single person that it's affected that you can essentially go on their website and they won't even verify if you've ever had an account or associated. They're just giving it away basically for two years that the credit monitoring. Um, so that, that's, that was one thing. It's, and, and it's just super sad because this is, I believe the third or fourth time in since 2017 that they've been on the news because, um, they've, they've had some type of breach. 
Yeah. So as a customer of T-Mobile, do you, are you thinking about moving away from them as a result of this? Like what, what would the action be as a customer, since you are a customer, what, like, what are you thinking here? I no, mean, I mean, oh yeah, for me, I mean, <laughs> it's a good price that they give us actually. So, um, but unfortunately, no, I'm not going to move. I mean, the, the damage is done, you know, and, and who's to say AT&T, I mean, hey, AT&T was on the news um, also. I don't know if it was their mobile division or, or the, um, their internet, but nevertheless, it's, it's like, it's going to happen, unfortunately, man. Well, the reason I, mean, I ask, the reason I ask is because as we were talking about this, I think about Cognizant Technology, which is an IT, a very large MSP, publicly traded. They do billions of dollars in revenue. They were hit with ransomware, just like Accenture was. Um, and Accenture is out there going, "Oh, it was a minimal impact." You know, they're trying to downplay it. But if you take a look at what happened to this company, the attrition, the customers that are leaving Cognizant is is that it's blowing them away. It's causing them to lose millions and millions of dollars in revenue. Mm. Yesterday, they're, they're, they reported their earnings and they underperformed and their stock fell. So customers are leaving when these companies get attacked. And Accenture is going to feel the same heat that Cognizant did, in my opinion, even though they're trying to do their best to put a, you know, to put lipstick on a pig, so to speak. Um <clears throat> Like I, I don't know, Andre. I'd be leaving if I were you. I'd be, at least be looking elsewhere. But um, if it was, yeah, for me, if it was like if it was my 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 in our case, our PSA, our our tool that we're using to manage our customers or something. Just yeah, I would definitely like we had the Kaseya. Like for the, I was in Kaseya, and I can get out that contract. I definitely would. Uh, but in this case, um, yeah, in this case, I, I I'm not. So there. Before we move on, there's some things you got to do though because. They've said that IMEI numbers have been leaked, which IMEI numbers are the specific um, identity, basically, of your phone, mm -hmm. which could allow hackers to call in and say, oh, hey, this is Andre. And, you know, I lost my, my SIM card in a boating accident. Can you please send me a new SIM card? Here's my IMEI. Um, and also, I read that some pins, some customer pins were released. So if you've got the same pin at like 20 different accounts, you got to go out and change that now. So the things you got to do, go change your pin everywhere. Um, you can call T-Mobile or get on T-Mobile.com. You, you can lock your account to where it can't be SIM jacked, basically. Um, and then you can also call the three credit reporting uh which I would, I would encourage this one for everybody. Call the three credit reporting agencies and lock down your credit to a PIN. Basically, no new credit will be issued in your name. And then when you want to open it, the government gives them an hour. So you have to you can go in with your uh, PIN. They have up to an hour by law. They can open up your credit. You can you know you apply for a new car or whatever. And then you can go back in and close it down. Um, and that's the way you're going to have to lock down at this point is you know, we'll probably get into today or soon talking about zero trust, man, just assume people are in your stuff. So have a different pin everywhere, you know, um, make sure your credit reports locked go to T-Mobile, lock your account. I agree. Yeah. That credit lock and that at least credit monitoring at a minimum. Know when somebody checks your credit, know when somebody applies your credit, applies for your credit. Um, I think those are the important things, you know, people need to know credit lock is definitely better than credit alerting, right? And so. it, it takes like 10 minutes to do a credit lock. So in, in a half hour, you can knock out all three reporting. Yeah. I need to do an article on that and we need to post that because I've already done it. So I'm familiar with the process. So um, give me one sec here, guys. I apologize. I'm in the middle of social media and my life up here. Oh, uh, there we go. And uh, so I want to get into another article that I wanted to highlight before we talked about zero trust. And that's uh, kind of in line with what this article just said about T-Mobile. And you know who else's security is awful? The government. Yes, the government. <laughs> so this article that was kind of 
it went under the radar. Not a lot of people were talking about it. August 3rd, 2021. It's a couple weeks old now. Um, but it says there was a blistering Senate report in 2019 that found dangerous cybersecurity lapses at eight government agents, including unpatched computer bugs and citizens' personal information left vulnerable to hacking. Two years later, things are barely better. And this was a 2001 update. It, it was released uh, that morning on August 3rd. And the Senate Homeland Security Committee found seven of the eight agencies had made only minimal improvements during the past two years. And only the Department of Homeland Security, which includes the government's lead cybersecurity agency, is doing substantially better. So I know when I brought this to you guys, your attention uh, earlier today, you guys didn't seem to be aware of it. So I want to kind of get your reaction based on the fact that you guys weren't in tune to this. Like, Andre, what are you, what's your initial reaction when you saw this? I mean, um, when, I, when I looked it up, the Homeland Security budget is $2.1 billion a year. Um, and who knows how many employees they have if, if that's public records. But I mean, like, what is the government doing with our money? What is T-Mobile doing with our money? Like when it comes to like, like securing us and, and is that just like uh, uh, something on the back burner and is Russian roulette? Like, I, I don't know. I'm disappointed for, you know. Yeah. You know what? It, the funny thing is, is like, I know how woefully bad people don't understand what a cybersecurity budget needs to really be. Um, I mean, I see a lot of boats out there <laughs> and it's like, wow, there's a lot of boats out here and I know boats aren't cheap. Right. And mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about, Andre, you're living the boat capital of the world for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, even up here in Jersey, there's a ton of boats and these things aren't cheap. They're not cheap to buy. They're not cheap to maintain. Um, but there's a lot of them out there. So, it's funny how, you know, these businesses, these companies, these executives, mm -hmm. um, not for nothing. I know uh, a major Kasei executive who's a, who, who has a big, big, beautiful boat. Um, you know, where is this money going? Like, are we taking the money home and having fun and, you know, buying boats and, and using our money as fun tickets? Are we, and are, are we taking cybersecurity as seriously as we need to? Um I, I don't think we are. Randy, where, where are your thoughts at on that? So honestly, this 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 makes my blood boil because it's it's the responsibility and it's because of elected officials. So I guess it boils back it boils bound down and back to us because we're the people that elected them. And I know that you've got this whole area of the government that's not elected, you know, they're they're assigned and hired and this and that, but it makes my blood boil and you know, there's nothing wrong with owning a boat or, you know, or whatever. But you're right, man. I've talked to business owners who've said, you know, we can't afford cybersecurity. And then, you know, they're driving around in like a $100,000 SUV. I mean, and nothing's wrong with the $100,000 SUV, but you can't afford, you just can't afford because you don't want to spend the money on it. And then, you know, the government is... I don't want to get off into politics or whatever, but you know, the government's got a long and inglorious history of wasting money and, you know, spending $900 on a, on a commode and $800 on a wrench and this and that. And, but, but really, I mean, bottom line, all that aside, it's freaking unexcusable that th this, the first report was two years ago and the follow-up report was just now. And the only one who's even done anything about it is the Department of Homeland Security with which, you know, that includes the cybersecurity arm of the government. So hopefully they're they're doing well. But the other seven agencies and arms they looked into weren't. So it's inexcusable, really. Yeah. So I'm just going to kind of cover what's up on the screen here real quick, um, because I think it's important to uncover this stuff for not only you know, our community, but the whole entire country and people need to understand what the hell is going on out there and how, how, how bad, not only most it companies are asleep at the wheel, but how bad your, your, your government's asleep at the wheel. And I talked to a lot of people and a lot of people put blind faith into the fact that the government's doing the right thing. And that like, you know, 
just because you work at the Department of State or because you work at NSA doesn't mean you're like some super genius hacker, right? Or, the, or some super genius security guy. You can't put faith in the fact that you know somebody who works there, you're friends with somebody or, you know, the, the customers are your bank, um, you know, be, and that, that makes you have better security than maybe what's out there, right? So this article goes on to say that the report is chock full of disturbing anecdotes. During a hacking exercise, investigators were able to access hundreds of documents containing peace people's PII from the Department of Education, including 200 credit card numbers. So Secur so Security Administration wasn't sufficiently protecting people's personal information and still hadn't implemented computer security requirements that were mandated in 2015. The State Department employees had left the agency for su substantial periods of time, but the department hadn't deactivated their accounts. I mean, Cybersecurity 101, stuff that we go in and uncover all the time in businesses and tell them you can't be doing this stuff. Yet our own government, who has basically unlimited resources, still is being lazy and can't get this right. Department of Transportation Inspector General found nearly 15,000 IT devices, including more than 7,000 phones that were being used by employees and contractors for which the department had no record. Right. Probably had email on it, files, you know, communication, text messages. And the, and the government didn't even know that these things existed in their environment. Right. That, and that's step one in NIST. Identify. Right. <clears throat> identify what you have. Right. So. Disturbing, unbelievable. I don't know. There's not much else to say about this. So, well, well um, there's, there's actually three things that, that came to my mind here. Right. So is, is it in, are they incompetent? They just don't know better. <laughs> is it that they're not responsible in the sense that they know that they're government employees and um, they're up the ladder and it's impossible to fire them? Or is it that they they honestly just can't protect it? Like they're, they're just doing their best, but, you know, they the, the bad guys only has to be right once and that's it. Like, so which one do you guys think? Or, or unless there's another one that you want to put to the list. I mean, it's a lot of things that you just said in that list. I mean, I, I don't I mean, I don't know. And I would take it on a case by case basis. I'm not the kind of person to just say, well, the whole Department of Transportation is incompetent, but they have 15,000 IT devices that they don't even have a record of. So and, you know. There, there, there's just this whole idea I, I saw, and this is on a tiny tangent, but I saw an interview with a government official, somebody in the press brought up, what about the $800 wrench? And they said, well, you know, our goal is just to spend the money because it helps the economy. Well, you can't have that kind of mentality when it comes to cybersecurity and buy everybody a computer and buy everybody a phone and spending all the bailout money and the, you know, the, all this and that. And, not have record of it. Like, like Brian said, that's, that's like step number one, identify. Yeah. I'm just going to chalk it up to incompetence and I'll leave it at that. That's why I left the government 17 years ago. So incompetence, we'll call it that. And we need to be better. We just need to be better. We need to take it more seriously. So, all right, boys, big one here. Thank God the good guys found it before the bad guys. Right. Azure, Azure DB, Azure DB, uh, what was it called? Uh, Chaos or Cosmos DB? Um, hey, say you're right, or someone's going to be. Uh, yeah, the angry. guy from Syracuse is going to yell at me. It's Cosmos DB, um, and uh, this database is basically the database for Azure. If you're in the cloud, um, obviously known as the NoSQL database. There was a research um, security researcher out of Israel. I think the company's name was Wiz. Um, disclosed this to Microsoft in early August. But there was a piece of this, uh, a new feature with this database um, that basically uh, allowed developers to do certain things with the database using this new tool. Um, the name of it is not coming to me, but Jupyter, that's it, Jupyter Notebook. Um, Jupyter Notebook uh, was was not enabled by default, but as of, I think, January 2021, they enabled this feature by default on all Azure accounts. And when they did that, 
this flaw being out there exposed all of every single Azure Cos, uh, Cosmo DB instance to the every Azure. single one. And you didn't need any kind of you didn't even need to be basically logged into it to, to get read, write, uh, create and delete access to the database. You could basically have deleted somebody's whole entire database if you figured this out. And like I said, luckily enough, the good guys found this, disclosed it, and it was patched before the bad guys did. But Microsoft is coming out and saying, we really don't know if this was being actively exploited before Wiz came to us. So you need to assume that you were breached and you need to go into your incident response. So now here we go. We have 3,300 companies that now need to go into an incident response plan for their Azure instance. What percentage of those 3,300 companies do you think actually have an incident response plan ready to go? 1%. Uh, I, yeah, that's I would say that's probably about right. So the yeah. rest of them are just going to wing it and hope they have the logs and hope Microsoft can maybe help them out to figure things out. But we're talking to companies like Liberty Mutual Insurance, Coca-Cola, Walgreens, which Walgreens basically said they use it for their prescriptions to get prescriptions processed. Um, who else uh, did I see? Uh, I forget who else were one of the other companies that were on it, but I'll, I'll think of it. Um, Andre, what do you know about this? What are your thoughts on it? You know, it, go, it, it goes back to the other, the 1% that we're talking about, because now this becomes the lazy factor, you know, an IT company that may have, been, or excuse me, an IT, you know, engineer or team knows about this and they're just going to just hope that Microsoft fixes it, not actually investigate it more because they don't want to lose their weekend. Yep. And 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 now bringing this on a smaller scale for the businesses, how many alerts do we IT professionals get from, um, you know, from either it's uh, an actual manufacturer or from government, and then we just delete the email or or just ignore it, which is why I think it's so important that when you're choosing an IT company, these are like tech the, the questions of how are you getting information when there's a vulnerability and what are you doing about it? What is that plan? And, and not just putting it under the rug and hope it doesn't happen to you. Do you guys – go ahead, Randy. Uh, I was just going to say on a positive note, though, and I know Microsoft's had a lot of issues with, you know, SolarWinds got hacked and that gave, gave you know, bad actors access to source code and, you know, then other hacks came out of that. But one thing that this highlights that's needed that's often overlooked – is this whole idea of penetration testing, um, trying to get into your stuff from the outside, making sure that you don't have vulnerabilities. Like, yeah, you can do, you can cross all the T's, dot all the I's, but you still need to be bringing in something, some person, an organization, whatever, to test for vulnerabilities. And, and you know, good that Mac Microsoft did, you know, I think they they ought to pay whiz a couple mil instead of 40 grand. Yeah. That's the thing that blows my mind with that number. Like, I don't know. 40 grand is like getting off easy. Microsoft, like they saved your bacon. Could you imagine if this was a, a Chinese hacking group or, or a Russian state sponsored hacking group that, that had this, a, we wouldn't have known about it. B, God knows what they would have been able to, to discover and, 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 and do with the data. Um, now, are you guys like, I guess like the, like what, what I'm used to seeing uh, when these types of things happen and it gets in the news. Um, are your, your customer, do your customers come to you? Like to come to me and start asking you questions about these kinds of things. Like if you have, like if you have a customer who's in Azure, <clears throat> Does, you know, what do you say to your customer who's in Azure that you put there, that you recommended you go there, um, and now there's this problem? Like, how do how do we handle this? And how, what's the best advice you could give a business owner? Nothing is 100% secure. Right. Nothing is 100% guaranteed. And, like, if – first off, if I recommended this to uh, a client, I would – I would reevaluate, but at the end of the day, 
I would say change the keys right away. Um, and then, you know, reassure them that this kind of stuff does, you know, does happen. Um, I mean, that would, that would be probably my, you know, my biggest piece of advice. And people do ask me questions about stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, your goal is just to be as safe as you can. I, what I kind of wish or wonder why in this particular instance, like why isn't there a customer facing encryption in this database? So if someone at Microsoft stole the data or, or a bad actor stole the data, it would be useless because it's encrypted where it's only unencrypted, you know, in the customer facing, like, why are there keys on there that, that someone can get access to? Why are those almost, almost a master key? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's tough. It's, it's tough. It's, it's the, it's the thing with the cloud that's difficult for like, the world that the three of us come from where we're used to, you know, buying the infrastructure, deploying the infrastructure, we can touch it, we can see it, we can feel it. And we have a lot of control over it. Right. When we go to the cloud, we lose a, 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 a that ability. Right. We lose a sense of control over how much we actually have control over. And that's part of going into the cloud is like these these vendors need to do a better job with security. If they're going to be offering services in this manner where it's like, hey, you don't need to worry about managing hardware anymore. We're going to take that off your plate if you go to these cloud services. They also pitch that you don't have to you know, worry about security at the same level anymore. Um, like, So now we've moved from, in my mind, being able to control things tighter and being able to kind of, you know, make sure our security is tighter. We've gone through to a distributed kind of model, but we've also now become reliant on these vendors to do the right thing and make sure they're, they're securing things maybe the way that we would in our own businesses or in our own clients' businesses. And I got to say, in my opinion, right now, we're failing at that we're, or those companies are failing at that um, and we need to do a better job. So how can we do a better job? And I think that's a good segue into the rest of the show that we wanted to really talk about. How can we do a better job when really we're losing control of a lot of the components that we used to have control over? Um, not that it's hampering us, our ability to do security the right way. We just have to look at it. Uh, differently than we have in the past. Um, so that leads us to our discussion about zero trust, right? Like zero trust to me um, is really becoming the thing that's going to stop this stuff. Like it's going to, these are the things that we can put in place almost as individuals. Like if we're going to buy services from like a Cisco, right? Or you know, a data or, you know, cloud-based service like Azure or AWS. Um, what can we do to make sure that, you know, if they do get breached, I don't want to get hacked still. I don't want to hear yeah. that there was this vulnerability in AWS and now all AWS servers have been attacked and, you know, they're all down or they all have ransomware or something like that, right? I don't want to find that out and not and feel completely hopeless, and I think zero trust is our key, right? Zero trust is the way that we can control things at several different levels. So let's start educating our audience on what zero trust is from, a, from, a, from that standpoint. And then what layers in the security chain can we implement zero trust? Um, and I think that'll probably get us to the end of the show. We're already 40 minutes in. So let's talk about that for like 20 minutes. What in you, what's your definition of zero trust? So start with Andre and then we'll, we'll jump over to Randy. So it's, a, it's essentially eliminating the trust on the computer, on the system, or, or a user. Yep. So, and it, it's, basi it's basically where you, um, you give out minimum privileges only as needed, you, you verify who it's getting explicitly and then at the same time you assume that the bad actors are in the mix and so what am i going to do with if all you know if the bad actors are in the mix how would i act how would i change what i'm doing you know going back to that 
Well, I think, hold on. That was a good point, right? Because that applies to you can't just zero do zero trust at one layer, right? right. Because Your whole you know, right. So at, at a certain layer, say the application layer, something may have gotten in, but you can implement zero trust at other places to where they can't move laterally or expand, you know, their footprint. Uh, and that's what you're kind of referring to there, I think. Right. So, um, you know, the way I look at zero trust is, is pretty simple. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. I'm also a Flyers fan. I like to go to sporting events. Um, I know I can't get into any of those games without a ticket, right? Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get into a professional sports arena these days without a ticket. Back in the 80s, you used to be able to sneak into Veterans Stadium. You know, when you know, the, the security guard, they, they take down the gate. You know, you didn't have to walk through metal detectors and the security guards go away. Or maybe if you knew a security guard, you may have been able to slip them 20 bucks and, and get into the stadium. Um, you know, and, and kind of stand around, you weren't going to get a seat. But that's kind of what we need to start looking at, you know, allowing things to happen on your network, allowing things to happen on your computers. Do you have a ticket to be here? Kind of like checking it. Do you have a ticket to be here? No, you don't. All right. You, you can't move any further. And that's kind of, you know, the best analogy I can give for zero trust. So, uh, so well, to put it like in um, kind of layman terms, like old school IT, would be like you have a house and either the front door is locked or you have a wall around it um, to keep everything out where zero trust is going to be like you have a key for you only that gets into the wall. You have a key for you only that gets in the door. Then you have a key for you only that gets into each into each room. There's cameras in the place and you got a gun under every bed. You know what I mean? So you're you're assuming you're just assuming you're it's just a more strict, if you will, but it's also um, defining though, instead of a giant wall out there, it's just, it's defining what needs to be protected exactly. And, and, and look at your protect surface as opposed to, you know, we still talk about attack vectors and attack surfaces and all that, but look at what do you exactly need to protect? Yep. So, where can we start with zero trust? Like if, if, if I'm a business owner, you're talking to me about zero trust. It sounds like a good idea. Um, I guess let's, before we go there, in your guys' opinion, I have an opinion about this. <laughs> Something like Kaseya, the Kaseya breach that happened over the 4th of July weekend. Would zero trust pre have prevented uh, like an MSP's co customers from getting ransomware if say application or process zero trust was in place the, in your opinion. the tool that i that we use for zero trust they said that they they it would have prevented it on the on the end on the end users end. on on the customer's computers yes yes correct right so like this is the point i'm trying to make with businesses now is that you know if you're concerned that your msp or your it is going, it could potentially get hacked. You're worried because I'm sure if you were a, a, a business that was the client of somebody who was affected by the Kaseya hack, you were probably told there was nothing we could do, right? They took over our tool, everything was deployed. But the reality of it is, is there was something you could do. You could have implemented process based zero trust. Um, and I'm not going to get technical on what that is. If you have a question about it, you can reach out to us or you can ask your IT professional. They should be able to educate you on what it is. But essentially, it's zero trust on the computer that monitors what's going on and shuts anything down that shouldn't be basically running on it. Um, and that would have prevented the ransomware from being deployed uh, if you were a client of somebody who was affected by the Kaseya breach. So there's different areas and different layers of zero trust. And I want to kind of get into that here in the last five or 10 minutes or so. Um, let's start, I guess, with where zero trust has been around kind of forever in my mind. It's just a matter of whether you can figure it or not. And that's at the network level. Mm -hmm. What happens at the network level when zero trust and like, let's get into like, like a business owner's perspective of like what zero trust is, what are the pitfalls? What are the cons of going to a network-based zero trust? 
Um, because like there is some sacrifice with going to this model, right? And you have to decide if the sacrifice is worth it to you. I it, think it is, but other people disagree with me. It's a sacrifice if you're coming in after the fact. But if if you're setting up a network from the get, and we're just talking about networks right now. So you identify the company's data that needs to be protected. And, you know, you'll have to sit down and, you know, the stakeholders have to be involved, but you you identify that data that has to be protected. Then you then you identify who gets access to it. And then you just set it up. It's not that hard if you're doing it from the beginning, but when you're coming in after the fact, you know, yes, you can't, sac you sacrifice the fact that like, like, you know, Sally, who um, is in, you know, XYZ department over here, can't just go hop onto the folder over in the ABC department over here um, because she doesn't have access to it because she's not been explicitly given the access to it. So you don't just get access to everything. It's, it's going to be explicitly defined. To me, it makes it cleaner, but you've got to, if you start that from the very, very beginning, it doesn't right. even have, you, you train the users to get into that. Um, so anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So more so like what I'm thinking about is like, and when I came, when I worked as a DOD contractor, you could not walk up to, we had network drops all over the place. Right. And they were open and there was a hole in the wall and you could walk, you could walk over and you could plug your laptop in. And as long as it was provisioned and allowed on the network by the, the MAC address, you were you could get internet access from basically any drop in the building. But you couldn't, I couldn't bring my home personal laptop in and plug it in and get access to the network and get access to the internet. It wouldn't get an IP address. It wouldn't be allowed on the network. Um, and that's the kind of zero trust I'm talking about. Like being able to plug into a network drop, being able to like log onto the Wi-Fi. Like basically permitting every single device that joins onto your network, you're, you're turning off the HCP, right? You're not giving out IP addresses like candy, you know, so to speak. You know, you, you know, somebody has to go in and say, okay, this computer has this MAC address. If this MAC address connects to the network, it can get an IP. Otherwise, no. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Like I get a lot of pushback from businesses when I you know, propose these types of things because when they hear like, oh, they have to put in a ticket or they have to call IT to be allowed to plug a computer in the network, they don't want to be bothered. They don't want to have to do that. It seems inconvenient to them. Are we beyond that point with this kind of stuff? Is this stuff that should be standard practices in every business, in your opinion? I believe it is, but it's a really hard sell. It's really hard to convince a business owner to agree to allow that to be how they operate. I just want to get your thoughts on that. If it's starting from the top, it, it's going to trickle down. And, and if that business owner is, is serious about security, um, we haven't had that much pushback um, as far as that, because, you know, again, it goes from the top. Um, the pushback I've gotten is on the, on the file level, kind of like what Randy was saying. Yep. where they were used to having a folder that was called a share drive and it was everything, marketing, accounting, payroll, like it was just a free for all because it was a family company. Everybody trusted everybody until someone stole something. And, <laughs> then, and then another level of zero trust is where people are used to just installing whatever they want on their computers. And right. now it's having to, uh, now they're basically having to go back to IT to allow it and to get permission. That's been the biggest um, pushback we've gotten when we implemented it. So sticking and, sticking with the network layer though. Sure. Is there a happy medium? And I know the answer to this, I'm kind of giving you a softball, but is there a happy medium between zero trust and the business owner who's like, look, if I go to Best Buy and buy a TV or if I go to Best Buy and get a, an Alexa or a Google home. I want to be able to plug that into my network and I don't want to have to call you. I don't want your guys to have to come out and set this thing up for me. You know, I don't want to live in that world where I'm, you know, I feel like I'm completely dependent on you to do anything, add anything new to my network that I want to add in your mind. Is there a happy medium or something that you would recommend in that case where you could still 
do implement implement the zero trust on the network maybe for some things and then there's some other things over here that are still you still kind of operate in the way that people have been used to for the last 25 years yeah just just set up a separate network that only has like a virtual LAN or you could even have a, their own separate equipment but that that just goes straight to the internet and it can't do anything else um, and keep that part separate and segregated from the rest of the, you know, rest of the network. And I think that's a big thing and that's perfect. That's the right answer, uh, Randy. It was a that's, softball. That's that's a, that's what we need to, to start really pushing in this industry is network segmentation, making sure MSPs aren't setting up flat networks that we're considering network segmentation and we're considering the main network where the assets are, the things we really need to protect, the critical things that we've identified in the first step of the NIST framework, right? In the identified step, these things are completely segregated in a zero trust type of environment. And that's really business is how you do it. You need to do zero trust today if you want to be completely protected. If you want to make life difficult for hackers so they move on somewhere else, because that's the name of the game, right? When it's easy, they're going to attack you. When it's hard, they're going to go somewhere else because you're just you're just too hard to figure out. You're too hard to break through. So zero trust on the network, segregate it, and you can still you know have your Amazon Alexas. You can have your TVs. You can plug in whatever device you want to plug in. You can bring your kid in on a Thursday or a Friday and have him plug in his Xbox, and the world's not going to come to an end. And you don't have to call you know IT to come in and get the Xbox on the network. So. Good job. So let's jump into, um, you know, the things you guys were kind of alluding to there, um, which is on the endpoint, you know, zero trust on the endpoint. And what can we do there? What are some options that we have to lock down the endpoint from a zero trust standpoint? You're basically li limiting. I mean, Andre already said this, um, might have said both of these, but one limiting the software that they can install on there with some sort of device management. I mean, you know, back in the day, you know, you could install Spotify and, you know, and this and that on your work computer, but that's, um, that, that not the Spotify's dangerous, but that could be dangerous just allowing anything, but then also even taking even to even more granular, granular level of not allowing anything to run or install on a computer, unless it's been, explicitly whitelisted and you can also take that like like i believe that's that's how we should have our firewalls so it ought to be you know only, only whitelisted things get through and if you e need to open up port 8000 for a camera then you just open it up for just that camera you don't open it up for the entire entire network yep add there yeah, um, even if you remember back, I um, I want to say last year, March, uh, probably, yeah, right when um, COVID started, there was a big situation with Zoom, and there was a um, there, there was a vulnerability within the application, and with zero trust and using certain tools, you everybody thinks Zoom is a you know obviously it's a legit company and and everything they do, but they got a vulnerability in their system, and with the zero trust would have also been able to block that. So I um, just wanted to add that as well. So we have zero trust on the endpoint, basically for application installations, right? And then we have zero trust technology for basically, if you're not familiar with, I, I got to imagine that anybody that's used computers for any period of time knows what task manager is, right? You knows how to get the task manager, knows how to kill those app, those things that come up on the screen, well, those things that come up to the screen are known as processes, right? And we have process-based zero trust available today. And why that's really slick and really nice is ransomware is a process that needs to run on your computer. So if you have zero trust process application in place, <clears throat> an application in place, not application zero trust, but process-based zero trust, you can tell the system, any these are the processes that are allowed to run on this this system and if any other process tries to run don't let it run and it won't run right so if ransomware tries to run and this is installed on your computer and it's actively looking for processes and it says that is a process that is not in my allowed list you are not allowed to run 
and it won't let it run. And you will not get ransomware. And that's pretty much how it works. And I'm not familiar with really anything that can circumvent that because everything that runs in Windows is a process. So unless you get processless ransomware, which I don't believe exists yet, um, it may exist in some forms of ransomware when you're talking about VMware types of exploits. But outside of that, I think you still need it to be a process to run on a Windows system and encrypt the files on a Windows system. So um, process-based zero trust, I don't know. You would think that they would just build this into Windows, but... I have a couple. Yeah, it would probably be better built into Windows because the the process police is a process in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So my question is, can you take down the process police and then run whatever you want? And then also, you know, like interesting you say that because why? Right. Because when we see ransomware being deployed, usually the first thing they try to do like I know with, um, shoot, I just read it. I think it was Lockbit, the new one that's kind of really hitting everybody right now. It's the one Accenture got hit with. I just watched a video in Russian uh, last night, I think it was. And they literally said that their ransomware has built into it before it deploys. will go out to the internet and get the uninstallers. You know, you know. Because we, we have problems, you know, in our business, like our techs have problems uninstalling people's antivirus, right? So every mm -hmm. manufacturer has an uninstall tool, right? That you can you can go to their website and it basically goes through and wipes out everything that gets installed, every registry entry. <clears throat> and these guys, these ransomware guys are downloading this tool directly from the internet automatically. It's programmed in. What it looks and says, okay, what rants, what antivirus is installed? Okay, it's Kaspersky, okay, go get Kaspersky's uninstall tool. It runs first. And the only thing, the only thing that will prevent that, that antivirus from being uninstalled is if you were diligent enough to put a password on that uninstall because most antivirus has the ability to have an uninstall password. So if you put an uninstall password on where you need a password to uninstall that, I've evaluated a lot of systems in my day. I rarely see that. So if you don't have that turned on, these ransomware guys are going to uninstall your antivirus before it runs. The, yeah, and th that brings up another component that's needed with zero trust. And that going back to this whole idea of assuming that the bad actors are in, you've, you've got to have something, whether you're watching anomalous traffic coming in and out of the network or anomalous things happening on the actual computer itself, you've got to be watching for like someone sending an uninstall code, you know, um, for somebody running like PS exec, which hopefully that would be blacklisted, but you know, with PS exec, that's a, it's kind of not really a built in tool, but it's a neat little tool. You can do a lot of really cool stuff with basically running things on other computers and, and this and that, like, that should throw up a red flag because there shouldn't be anybody trying to run that. Um, but, you know, and you want to have hurdles and you want to have it segmented and you want to have it layered. So if someone comes in and has a way to kill off the process police, well, that in and of itself ought to be noticed by something, you know, that that, that just happened. And, you know, you can, you can take that computer with modern existing software right now, y'all know this, but I'm, for our for our audience, yeah. take that computer and segment it right away, and basically isolate it from the rest rest of the of the world. Yeah. Um, that's not the only answer, but anyway, preach on, brother Randy. I agree. I agree. So, <laughs> so it, just let's wrap up the show. We're an hour in. This is really good stuff. I just want to know. And I just want you guys to kind of, you know, say this. If I'm a business owner, we throw a lot out here, right? And we're, we're pointing out that the federal government, you know, they suck at cybersecurity. We're pointing out that T-Mobile sucks at cybersecurity. So, like, supposedly, if you listen to us, everybody sucks at cybersecurity. Um, is that really the case? And all the stuff that we just laid out here in the last 20 minutes, on a scale of 1 to 10, how difficult 
is would this be for businesses to implement if they hired our companies to come in and do something like this? Because mm. to me, when we talk about it, and, and if I'm a if I'm a, a, a you know a neophyte, I don't know anything about this stuff. It, this stuff sounds complicated. It sounds expensive. Do you agree with that statement, or do you disagree? It 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 can be, um, you know. But also, you got you've got to look at the the opportunity costs, and you got to weigh out the you know the risk and what could okay, happen. Like, relatively speaking, based on your knowledge of the right side of the boom or what happens after a cyber attack, knowing what that cost is on that side of it versus doing this. That's I mean, the perspective I want you to have. Like, don't just assume like if I'm not spending anything, yo, well, yeah, obviously it's going to cost you more if you're not spending anything. But in terms of like, if I have, if somebody came to me and said, you're going to get ransomware in 15 days, unless you do something. Right. And if you do something now, it'll cost you $20,000. But if you wait 15 days, it's going to cost you $200,000. That's kind of this perspective I'm looking at. Like, is it is, do you agree with that statement? And do, do we really think, you know, should a business owner feel like this is something difficult or almost impossible to achieve or realize in their business? Cause I don't. I look at this as like a two out of 10. Like this is something every business can do um, if it's done properly. But businesses, for whatever reason, are choosing not to do it. So agree, disagree. What do you think? Well, since you're since you're the hockey fan, the analogy I'm going to give is, you know, you can have you can go on the ring with no equipment and you're going to get beat up bad or you can you're gonna go fall on your elbows and your elbows are going to be hurt and bad. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or you can go on the ring with all the pad that you need, and and yeah, you're you may still fall, but it's going the 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 impact is going to be much less, or it, it may even protect you all the way. Great I analogy. Mean, Great analogy. I don't even know if I want you to talk, Randy. <laughs> I'll do it quick. It. It's not. It's not. Also, you can't just look at the monetary the monetary value because. You, you may pay, I would say if, if you could do it now for 20, it's probably going to cost you 500,000 for a ransomware with your downtime, your money you have to spend. I mean, we're talking a lot more, but then also you could literally lose the business because your, your cash flow could stop, cause it to tank. Your reputation could tank. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of other things that don't have a monetary value where it's just so much easier and literally 80% of what we've talked about in the last 25 minutes, the three of us could roll out with scripts on, on networks that we manage and get them 80% there by the end of the day. True. I mean, so, you know, it's not now the other 20%, a little harder. That's where you start getting into stuff people don't want to deal with sometimes, but, yeah, but let's just be frank, right? We all know where our businesses are at. You know, we, we don't have to publicize it here. But you're not gonna you're 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 gonna look if you're not properly spending enough money on cybersecurity. I'm trying to find the right words here, but you're not properly spending the right dollar amount on cybersecurity and I and your IT support in your business today. Like let's just say you look at the check you write or you look at your budget for IT, divide that by you know, you take your annual budget, divide that by 12, and then divide that number by the number of employees you have that you have like a per employee or a seat price, right? If you're south, meaning less than $100 per employee, you're going to look at what we have to offer as expensive, right? Because you're used to paying substandard prices and getting substandard support in your business, right? But if you're paying market value where you're north of $100 a seat, maybe even closer to $200 a seat or higher, um, that's where you should be realistically, just to break it to you. If you've never heard that before, um, <laughs> it's not going to seem expensive to you. So at that point, it's just hiring the right people who have the knowledge and, and ability to do it. So, um, I guess I just wanted to paint that perspective because we know that it pricing is all over the map and somebody's perspective around what it costs is 
who might be over here versus another guy who's over here. So, uh, so we're about an hour and five in guys. I'm going to wrap up the show. Great job. Um, I think this is really valuable information for people to, to know and, and listen to and, and hear. Remember to share out our podcast to your friends and family. Rate us on the on the iTunes and wherever else they let you rate us. Um, we are on Audible. We're in Amazon. I see it's all over the place now. Just search uh, Security Squawk Podcast. We we pretty much come up everywhere. Um, any any last words you wanna you guys wanna throw out there before we head out? I already dropped my mic earlier, so I'm gonna keep yeah, it buddy. Going. That's then, right. Uh, Same here. Any of you got hurricanes coming your way? Yeah, we got one uh, coming up into uh, Mississippi. We're going to get some good rain and stuff from. So, Good luck. Stay safe. Make sure you have your disaster recovery plan on file. So, All right, guys. I'll see you all next week. Have a good weekend. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you.